Are you ready to make 2017 the year you transform your life? You can wait for something to happen, or you're actually going to decide to go, go home after this weekend to do something about that. We all know that we have a very, very limited amount of time on this earth. So let's not have repeated years. Live your own life. Make the choice, make the decision for your own life. Fear is where you develop courage. There's a moment going, holy crap, all right, I'm gonna do this now. The wellness breakthrough is coming. And so you actually have that choice every single morning, every single day, every single moment to decide whether you're gonna live it to the fullest or not. Join myself, Marcus Pierce, and the wellness guys, Damien Christoph, Lawrence Tam, and Brett Hill for two nights and three days of transformation at the country place. 10 acres of breathtaking rainforest in the Dandenong Ranges of Victoria, February 17th to 19th. It's each and every single one of you are gonna support each other in your journey, whatever that journey is. Couples discounts available, limited spots remaining for all information and to watch the spine chilling video, go to thewellnessbreakthrough.com. Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to a place of wellness and healing for both your body and mind. Get ready to live a happy, healthy, whole food life that totally rocks. You're listening to Shiny Healthy You, the straight-talking natural health show for busy women with your host and naturopath, Jules Galloway. Today's guest is a woman on a special mission to help those less fortunate. This lady is not just a naturopath, she's a humanitarian and she's a get shit done kind of lady. She also fronts up an organization called Involvement Volunteers International and she's currently organizing a trip to Greece that you may have heard me speak about already to bring healthcare to Syrian refugees living in the camps there. We met online just a little over a month ago and straight away I knew I just had to be involved in her upcoming project like immediately so it was only one day after I first heard about this trip I'd already signed up to go with her and some of you may remember my crowdfunding campaign that I held in late November and early December so with only a few weeks to go until we actually head off I thought I'd get this wonderful human on the show to talk about where we are going and what we will be doing there please welcome to shiny healthy you the wonderful Lauren Lacey Hello. <laughs> How are you going? Really well. That was an amazing introduction. Thank you, Jill. <laughs> I do my best. Now, we were just talking uh, before we hit record about how excited we're starting to get about this upcoming trip. But before we launch into all of that, can you just tell us how you went from being a naturopath to becoming involved with humanitarian efforts? Yeah. So my naturopathic journey began, um, I guess, on a sort of self-explanatory journey where I was, you know, trying to improve my performance as a runner and and as a mother as well. I had um, a young boy at the time that's now two two young boys. But, yeah, learning about how to best care for them and, and myself with my performance and then I guess looking um, how it led to the humanitarian response work was looking outside of that now that I felt like I understood, you know, how to how – to, 
heal myself and help myself and my family, how I could relay that to others. And I've always been called, I guess, since I was a little girl when I saw people doing mission work, something just reached into the heart of me and made me feel like I have to do something when I'm older and ready down the track. So uh, when my eldest son was 10, we decided to take the leap and go to India. We met a guy on Facebook of all places, which seems to be the place <laughs> things <laughs> developed from, um, who was running a school and a community project in northern India in Bodh Gaya, which is the poorest state. Um, it's got extreme poverty up there. It has a lot of drought, lack of water, and it has extreme weather, so it's freezing in the winter and extremely hot in the summer. So we took him over there and we worked with the children in the school and um, it was amazing. It was eye-opening. It was confronting. It probably wasn't until we came home that we processed and sort of took in a lot of the lessons from that trip and how it really impacted our lives. That made me sort of feel like it's not enough. You know, it's not enough to just go over there for a month and, and help out. Even though it was incredible, we wanted to do something a bit more long-term impactful. So our goal was to set up a, a, a web page and spread the word and try and bring as many volunteers as we could over there to help him with his project because he was doing everything from, you know, a poor village trying to put in a school. They didn't have medical care. So even things just like fundraising for a van, that could be a makeshift ambulance just to get people um, to the city to, to access health care. So that became a project we were pretty passionate about um, and got behind and then, uh, Tim Cox, who's the founder of Involvement Volunteers International in Australia, which is one of the first NGOs that recruited volunteers to go and work in projects all over the world. He was retiring and, and looking for someone to take over his org. So, and he contacted us through what we were doing in India and said, you know, I'm, I'm ready to hand over the baton if it's something you'd be interested in. So we flew down to Melbourne, had a chat with him and said, yep, this is, you know, we just feel so aligned with his mission and his purpose, and that's how we um, became the, the people running um, IVI, Involvement Volunteers International, and uh, hence, you know, we've, we've done quite a bit more work in India. Last year was heavily focused on Fiji poster cyclone, so we do a lot of emergency um, relief response work, and in that relief work we did things like, you know, bringing food bags and aid to families that were stranded with the cyclone. The Fijians in some areas such as Suva, they didn't have electricity for six months oh following. God. Yeah, so it's not like, you know, it's not like Australia where you have these natural disasters and the government, you know, chips in the funds to, to get it, you know, up and running ASAP. It takes a long time. So they're heavily reliant on volunteers and, and local NGOs as well to step in and, and help. So sort of off the off the back of that project, I set up a nutrition project as well because I saw there was such a huge need for nutrition education support. Um, Fiji is a little bit different than India in that they've got malnutrition, but in India it's because they don't have enough food. In Fiji they have too much of the wrong type of food, so they're – Nutrient um, levels are poor because they're eating so much, you know, processed white flour, sugar, but not enough fresh vegetables and fruit, which actually surprised me because historically Fijian culture is very, you know, island culture, but given um, the Western adaptation to, you know, fast food and fried food, it's really, really been a big shift. So that was quite eye-opening. Um, 
And from there, just following the Syrian refugee crisis and having that same feeling in my, my heart that something, you know, needs to be done, saw a photographer friend who went over there and took photos of the Syrian refugee crisis in Greece, which is what raised my awareness to, you know, the islands of Lesbos and Chios where the refugees are fleeing Syria and coming in as the first entry point into Europe because a lot of the other countries have closed closed the gates. So, um, and then, yeah, an opportunity to travel to, to Europe in February led me to feel like, okay, this idea is landing on me. I need to, to run with it. It's, you know, it's time. So, yeah, I guess that's what led to the decision to do the Greece project and very excited to be doing it with you, Jules. I know. I, I'm totally I'm totally excited and I've, I was just saying I've already started packing even though it's weeks away. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it is really hard to watch a lot of that footage and, and I think Facebook gives you more of an indication of what's been going on in Syria, especially um, more so than, than what you even see on, on the TV news. Like, and I was just seeing all this stuff unfold on Facebook and just, you know, it, it breaks your heart, but then you go, Oh, what can I do? And so when something like this came up, it was a tangible thing that you can actually put your hand up and do, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the power of social media, what I, what I love about social media is it's unfiltered. So when you're looking at, you know, your Channel 9 or your Channel 7, even ABC and, and SBS, which are, you know, branch a bit more further into foreign um, global sort of issues, it's still very filtered and it's you're only receiving what they want you to receive and it's usually only snippets of what's actually going on, whereas on Facebook you can get the full story. Um, and you also, not only that, you get people who are living there putting up their comments and opinions so you can actually learn as well from that story. So I find it quite an amazing tool, you know, for, for real social and global issues. Yeah, yeah. It's a, Facebook's a really powerful thing. It really is. Mm. So, so then you did use Facebook to pull together a lot of this trip. So how did you get from wanting to do something in Greece to actually pulling together the team? Because it, it's quite a large team of doctors, naturopaths, nurses. What else have we got? Yeah, we've got whole, we've got a, a trauma counsellor. Um, yeah, we've got, and when you say doctors, we've got specialty doctors too. So we've got gynecologists, obstetricians. Same with the nurses. We've got obstetric nurses, so people who are really specialised who can really get in and, and, you know, help in the disaster zones. Yeah, and so how did you find these people? How did they find you? <laughs> Yeah, well, once the idea landed and I said, yes, I'm, you know, I'm taking this project on, I put a post up on Facebook on our IVI Facebook page and then in our natural therapies groups pages um, just to see, you know, with the hope that I'd get sort of a team of four to six people and <laughs> you know, hopefully wouldn't be on my own <laughs> and was absolutely blown away and, and, you know, the response was incredible. I had, I remember the first count, there was 62 people who said, yes, I'm interested to learn more, please um, add me to, you know, because I was setting up a separate page so I could gather everyone who wanted information. Um, and I was just, yeah, I was so, and that was after the very first post. I never reposted it. Um, people just kept commenting underneath it, which sort of kept bumping it up, which was, I think, how you saw it. Yep. So, yeah, and at the moment we're now looking at a team of 29 and it's growing by the day, so... <laughs> 
That is is really really remarkable, and yeah, just that that uh, momentum of people wanting to jump on board has just been really mind blowing. How many people were just like so ready to drop everything and go? Yeah, that's right. And what you know, what excites me too, and you've mentioned this before, is we're a really integrated team. So the fact that naturopaths and doctors, nutritionists, nurses are all coming together just really shows you know people need that holistic approach to cover every angle it's not just one way and I think by providing that we can give the best you know the best skill set um, possible to the people over there yeah and a lot of people would actually when I was uh, raising the funds doing the crowdfunding to go a lot of people would actually just you know not in a bad way but just quietly say to me what what can a naturopath actually do so yeah, yeah, tell me about that. What what can the naturopaths and the nutritionists be doing over there to help? Yeah, well, given that the project focus is hugely on the malnutrition, because at the moment the refugees are only fed sort of one decent meal a day, and it's not even decent. It's like a you know packet of pasta that's been cooked with the tomato sauce plonked on top, and there's no veggies or anything added to that. That's sort of the standard. They might get some um, bread or lentils to eat for breakfast and lunch, but it's very basic. So the camps are heavily reliant upon NGOs and people's donations to provide fresh fruit and veggies. And being winter and being so cold at the moment, things such as vitamin D deficiencies, um, I expect will be quite rampant. And that's something where the nutritionists and the naturopaths can get in there and, and do those assessments. And we've got We've um, received a wonderful donation from Biomedica of vitamin D that we can donate as well as biocuticals have donated whole food powders um, that we can also bring in energy bars to really help just boost up their nutrition. Um, a, a one sort of group that we're focused on is women and children and, and breastfeeding mothers. They have greater nutrition needs, uh, so we really want to make sure they're supported and I guess from a naturopathic perspective too, you know, we'll be bringing in a few things like bushflower essences just to help with that emotional support that, that is needed. The doctors obviously do the great work with, you know, the medical assessments and, and medications and whatever sort of needed from that emergency standpoint and the nurses with their wound care experience, hypothermia treatment, but naturopaths also cross into that knowledge area as well and, you know, have the first aid skills and and um, yeah, it should be definitely all complement each other nicely. Yeah, and you mentioned the hypothermia, and I think we just need to explain to people out there what what the weather's like in Greece at the moment. Because most people go Greece, ah, oh, beautiful, balmy, you know, blue skies, lovely, but it's cold there right now, isn't it? Yes, I must say I've been shocked at the images that I've been seeing this last couple of weeks. Because I see in my head, I think of Santorini. The cliffy white stone, you know, beautiful buildings, hot summer weather. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> the photos have been, it's like a winter wonderland, like the Arthium and some of the, the Acropolis. They're under snow at the moment. It's such a strange sight. And Athens historically doesn't get that many snow days, and it's just been hit this last week. So the camps, I mean, you, you picture a family living in a tent that that's under snow and how cold that would be they've got no electricity in there so they're just reliant upon blankets and their their you know bodies to keep each other warm and there's been unfortunately a few cases of um, death by hypothermia in the last few weeks which is really tragic and should be avoided they should definitely not be living in tents under the snow and 
some in northern Greece, the temperatures are about minus 15, and they say with a wind chill, you know, feels like minus 20, minus 30. And in Athens and Chios, it's about minus 7 and, and feels similar. The wind is absolutely freezing. So, yeah, it's not, not a nice place to be living at the moment. I saw an image just yesterday of people lining up for food, and it looked like a concentration camp. It was awful. They're standing in the freezing cold snow. The line was going back a kilometre just to get a warm meal. So it's, yeah, it's very difficult right now. And are there still people arriving by boat onto the Greek islands in those conditions right now? Yeah, there's still, and then this is, you know, the tragic thing too, people smugglers from Turkey or Syria um, should not be travelling in these conditions. It's extremely dangerous. Um, even just landings, they've got to get, usually when they get off the boat, they've got to get into the water to get off and they're already freezing this, the um, people smugglers make them throw away a lot of their bags and things that would keep them warm. So they're they're landing into the shores of Lesbos, Kos, and Kios Islands with with next to nothing. So yeah, it's it's not good. There's a, currently there's sixty two thousand refugees stuck in Greece. So there's a lot there. Yeah. So talk to me about the the whole journey. Like, so they say. I know we we will also be seeing um, some of the people we're looking after will be from places other than Syria. Like you did mention, Afghani's, Iraqis, etc. But a lot of them will be from Syria. So what's what's the journey they take? So they go along the land to Turkey, and then yeah. they they get in these horrible little rubber boats. Yeah. Yeah, they look like dinghies. They're big dinghies and. They generally pay anywhere between 1800 to 2000 euro for a dinghy for per person. So that's a lot of money, you know, for a Syrian family. And often what happens is, you know, the family can't afford everyone to go onto the boat. So they're sending their children first with, you know, maybe a big brother or the mother to look after the kids and the fathers and the uncles often stay behind. So the refugee camps, I think they say two-thirds are women and children. So it's, you know, it's it's um, sad that, that families have to split up as well. Yeah, that's that's actually really terrible. Is that why we're going to be seeing so many mums with young kids? Yeah, absolutely. And the women that are coming over can be pregnant on the boats, heavily pregnant. So it's an extremely dangerous situation. And you wouldn't do that unless you were desperate, you know, fleeing war and looking for a better better future for your family. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So then they go from Turkey across to the Little Islands and yes. and then what happens? Do they get processed there and then sent onwards? Yeah, they get processed on the islands. It should That process should only take a couple of weeks. It's taking months at the moment just because of the overcrowding and the fact that there's just not, not enough authorities, you know, to, to do all of that work. But once they get processed, they then get settled in one of the mainland camps and then they stay there until they, you know, select to migrate into Germany or one of the other countries of their choosing. And it's um, often there's family who have already migrated before them. So the biggest goal for them is to be where the rest of their family are. A lot of them are in Germany but sometimes the Greek government will only allow, you know, into Austria or somewhere else where they don't want to be. So that also increases the length because then they reject it and reapply again to get into the country that their family are. So it's a very lengthy process and it can be years at the moment. It's taking years before they can move on, you know, to continue to continue their path. And it's you imagine living, you know, for two years in a refugee camp type environment. It would, would be very hard. 
So it sounds like the processing procedure isn't taking into account where their family is because I'm sure they're not really that picky about where they go. They just but it, but they need that support and structure when they get there. Yeah, that's it. And if they don't always get what they choose is what I've been learning. So their preference, they might put preference one, Germany, and they usually have the preference two and three. But if they don't want to go anywhere else, they'll just only have preference one because that's where, you know, a husband might be trying to find his wife or a father might be trying to find his children. He doesn't want to be migrated into a, a different country. So they wait in Greece until they get approval for the country that they've, you know, of their desire. That actually seems kind of insane that that mm. people don't get matched up with their partners at the other end. No, that's it. I mean, I, the Greek government say they try to, but it often isn't the case. So there's a big team of um, legal workers across Europe who are amazing, who are in Greece at the moment trying to relocate, um, you know, families, get them all together. And, yeah, it's a, it's a huge process. Oh, my God. And the poor Greek government, I mean, it sounds like they're not – getting it right but also they've got a big job (laughs) yeah they've got a huge job because a lot of their military spend at the moment is going on managing the the refugee camps so and they've they've put a lot and they've actually for a a country that's in recession and it's struggling itself um they've actually been quite generous i think and it's a controversial subject out there but (laughs) we like controversy here (laughs) (laughs) Well, the fact that they haven't closed their borders like a lot of the other countries, like, you know, Paris just closed down one of their biggest camps in the in December um, in the lead-up to winter. And, you know, a lot of the, the people that and children that were in these camps are now missing and it's just awful. Whereas, oh my God. you know, the Greek government have kept their doors open. They've said, you know, you're still welcome here. The conditions aren't amazing, but I think they're doing their best with what they have. Yeah, wow. Like that that's it. At least they're still leaving the borders open, which is more than it sounds like a lot of people are doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, what do you have any figures on like how many refugees are just in Greece at the moment waiting to be processed in these camps? Cuz we we yeah. we should mention there's a few different camps that that um we're going to on this trip. Yes, absolutely. Well, there's 62,000 currently in Greece waiting to be, you know, from arrivals to waiting to be processed to move onwards, uh, which is quite a lot. We're going to be covering northern Greece in Thessaloniki, central Greece in Athens, and then uh, Chios, which is the islands, which actually looks closer to Turkey on a map, um, but that's sort of the access point. That, that project down there will be a lot more intense emergency work related on the mainland we're doing sort of more of the nutrition focus work really just helping boost the self-esteem um and the well-being of of the women and children and families there yeah so there's we've got i know you threw around that figure of wanting to help 1400 women um supporting them with you know pregnancy and breastfeeding can you tell me a little bit about that aim yeah, so I've got a fundraiser and quite a few in the team now are, are doing similar where we want to donate a grocery bag, a $50 grocery bag to the, the families, refugee families. The average family is at least uh, five people, so that $50 will feed five people. Um, and the goal is to provide the fresh fruit, the veggies, the nappies, seeds, legumes, um, just so they can have a sense, you know, of well-being. They they love to cook, the Syrian refugee families. So, you know, being able to provide them some things to use and, and do and, and give them that pleasure again 
as well as some of the essentials, you know, the nappies for the bubs is, is our goal. And we'll also be adding our donations, um, supplements and whole food powders, protein powders in with those bags. Yeah, so they they love to cook, but they just need the ingredients, like the the, the produce, the food. Where, where does that come from? It's all donations only. So, for example, um, Camp Vera, which is one of the camps in the northern Greece, they have a donation run every Tuesday and Thursday where they get um, they've sort of created like their own little supermarket on site where they get as much fruit and veggies and all of those things as possible and then hand them out every Tuesday and Thursday, which should last, you know, a good week for the, the, the families and the mothers to use to cook with. So, and the excitement, they've told me the excitement that when, you know, on those days when they're getting their fresh food, they're just so grateful and so appreciative and, you know, being coming up with a recipe or a meal plan for the week is something to look forward to. And I think that's really important. I've been hearing about, um, volunteers just bringing in DVDs that, that are in Arabic for the children just to give them something to feel happy about and forget their, you know, problems momentarily. I think it's really, yeah, really important. Yeah, and it's a it's really holistic way of looking at it as well. Like we're not just about handing out vitamins, are we? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. Well, if I go missing at any time for any period of time, you'll, you'll find me in a tent somewhere picking up cooking tips from some of these women because I'm, I'm fascinated. I'd love to, I'd love to experience some actual home cooking while I'm over there. That'd be awesome. Yeah, would be, would be. From what I've researched, you know, high vegetarian diets, lots of spices. Um, yeah, the food, the food actually, Syrian and even Greek food as well combined together, both look beautiful and, <laughs> yeah, I mean, falling into that Mediterranean sort of location too, very healthy and lots of antioxidant-rich, you know, produce. So in Greece and a lot of Europe, the food there is all locally grown, so you don't see big supermarkets like you see in Australia. It's all, you know, fresh markets and uh, farmers' markets, so you buy, you're really supporting that at that local level. Which yeah. I love. Well, that's the other place you'll find me if I go missing for any any <laughs> period of time. <laughs> so, so what is daily life like in the camps for these refugees? It sounds like there there's not a lot to do. No, and look, that's a very good question. I think it varies from camp to camp. The camps that have had a lot of NGO support, they've now put in place like on on kiosks where we'll be. They've just literally opened at the end of December. Um, an infant and children's centre in the camp there so that the kids can get some learning and they're they're bringing in volunteers who have, you know, kindergarten teaching experience and school teaching experience so they can give them lessons and do playtime activities and make sure that their education isn't slipping because Syrians generally um, have great education system or in the past so, um, so a lot of the projects really wanting to support that and and continue that on. Oh, that's great! And it's great that there's lots of people who, you know, like you said, like kindergarten teacher and childcare type experience who are willing to go over and volunteer as well. That's cool. Yes, fantastic. I mean, when people think of this, the refugee crisis, they think immediately of that emergency aid, but there's so much more in the day today um, going on. And I know that there's been like workshops set up for women. So they have sewing groups, things to make them feel like they can, you know, have some passions that they can share as well and teach each other too. Yeah, that's really cool. 
What sort of lasting impact are you hoping that this trip will make? Because I hope that what we do doesn't just kind of stop when we leave. Yeah, and I think that's so important as well that it's ongoing. And my goal with this first trip is to set up an ongoing refugee project that will expand not only to Greece but other countries in Europe that also, you know, support the refugees to make sure that, yeah, we can provide the skill set. So at the moment we're just doing a healthcare project, but I'd like to do a teaching education project as well as a construction team project so people with building skills can go and help with infrastructure and help making those, instead of living in tents, you know, put them in better warehouses or better buildings where if they are going to be stuck there for a long time that their living conditions are improved. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of them, they don't have any electricity at the moment, do they? Yeah, they don't. The, the, the camps that are tent-based, absolutely not. Like it's, yeah. And, I mean, it's so varied. Some of the camps that have really good NGO backing, they've just, you know, they've got donations for heaters and things to make their, you know, their days a little bit easier in these winter months. But it's not everywhere. It's only, you know, it's only sort of the main central areas that have received that better help. There's still a lot of camps that really could do with the support. Yeah. And that that's the thing that, that I really, that I, I've been getting my head around and that I, I did want to chat with you about this is that uh, we were featured very, we were very lucky to be featured last week on the news on Channel 7 and mm-hmm. we, we got a bit of coverage for this trip and, and for Involvement Volunteers International and that was all really awesome and I don't think we realised what was going to happen straight yeah. after that, did we? <laughs> we, <laughs> we copped a, let's just say that the, um, we copped a teeny weeny little bit of flack in uh, on the Channel 7 Facebook page by some lovely Australian people, and I use that term lovely, not no, not lovely, not lovely Australian people who think we should be helping only Australians rather than heading overseas. But, I mean, I, I know that what we're about to walk into over there is unlike anything that we would see here in Australia, right? Yeah. And that, that's why the, these people were on the Facebook page saying, Australia first, why don't you volunteer at home? What do you say to these people? Yeah, I had a little inward chuckle at myself um, at some of the negative comments because I don't think it's easy to judge and I think Australians get quite passionate about refugees and not wanting boats coming into our country. But I think this situation is extremely different in that uh, you know, it's civil war, people aren't escaping just because, oh, Australia looks like a nicer country to live, let's go there. They're escaping because they're trying to save their lives and their children's lives and um, be safe. It's not, you know, it's not a choice. They have to flee. So, you know, there was a comment made that I that I thought was quite clever in that, you know, a homeless person in, in Melbourne, the, the refugees would probably give anything to live in a condition of a homeless person in Melbourne compared to what they are at the moment. And, again, you know, we do, and I, and I guess it's a, a bit of a judgment, but a lot of us in the team already doing so much for the community. I know in particular I'm thinking of Holly um, who's who works down in Melbourne with the refugees there, so she helps them integrate into Australia. Deb in Brisbane, she actually takes refugees into her home um, and helps helps them within Australia as well as doing work for the local community, helping homelessness in Australia. 
um, for Australians. So I think when you've got a humanitarian heart, you help in every any way that you can. When you feel called to do a project, you know, it's not something easy to say no to. It doesn't matter where it is or who it's with. I think just helping in general is is amazing if, if you know, if you can do it. It takes a lot of courage. Um, you know, and we help just in the communication we have with our family members. There's so many way to, ways to help rather than just, you know, overseas international aid. Um, and I think those, some of those negative comments were looking at us, oh, we're, we're ignoring Aussies and we're only helping over there. But, yeah, I think we all help everywhere in our own ways, including Australians. Yeah, and it's it's kind of fitting that you brought up the whole homeless in Melbourne thing. Cause I don't actually know if you know this yet, but um, I was homeless in Melbourne in the oh. in the nineteen nineties. So once and and look, I wasn't I, I didn't sleep on the street. I did a lot of couch surfing, um, but things were pretty sketchy there for a while, and I lived in some pretty rough places. But I'm actually looking forward to when I come back. I can actually say to those naysayers, mate, I've seen both sides of the coin with my own two eyes. And I'll tell you which one I'd rather be. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, until we see it and we go over there, I just don't think it's comparable, you know, to the conditions that that we have in this amazing country. Yeah. Talk to me about the self-care that us as team members are going to be doing over there to make sure that, that we come back in one piece, both, you know, physically and mentally. Yeah, well, I mean, as you know, as expected, it's a traumatic um, environment that we'll be putting ourselves into. So, we've had an amazing uh, volunteer who's not actually coming with us on the trip, who's a trauma counsellor, offer to do some workshops and things. She's doing one tomorrow morning with the team online, so that she can just prepare us mentally, physically. The NGOs that we're working with too have lots of processes in place and check-ins um, to make sure that, you know, teams are coping, that people are feeling okay, um, processing the information that they're receiving well. We're going to have um, little teams because we've got so many different projects going on. We'll be in teams of sort of four to six. Um, so each morning for 15 minutes we'll be have a series of questions that we'll check in with each other just to see how everyone's going because sometimes, um, you know, you're seeing so much and you, you're feeling so much, it sometimes can take some time before you can express how that's affecting you. So I think that morning check-in um, is really important. And then following the trip as well, checking in with the, with our teams, you know, on, and beyond to see how it's affected us long-term too because, like I mentioned earlier, it wasn't until we came back from India that we processed a lot of what we experienced and saw and kind of, took on how that lesson impacted and affected us, you know, and then how we wanted to action it for the next time. So um, I think it will be an ongoing journey and important that we, you know, we're all sharing and, and communicating daily. Yeah, and the good thing is is there's lots of naturopaths in the team. So Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Being, you know, a group of healing, you know, type professionals, I think that helps as well, you know, with the em- empathy and understanding. Yeah, we're we're biased, but I'll say yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I know that there'll be people out there listening to this um, who want to know how they can help. We've we've had lots of lovely volunteers put their hands up to help, but not everyone can drop everything and fly to Greece. So yeah. what are the what are some other ways in which uh, people can help with this? 
Yeah, look, I mean, we've got the campaign ongoing on the Go Get Funding for the $50 um, shopping bag. So if anyone would like to donate for that, you'll actually get photos and images of us physically handing out the bags, which I think is nice. So you feel like, you know, you can see the outcome of of your donation and how you've specifically helped. And you Um, don't have to donate $50 either. You can donate less, yeah? Yeah, $1, you know, or as as much as you like, absolutely. So um, whatever, you you know, you're comfortable with. Jules will have uh, something up on her page. I've got mine up on www.volunteering.org.au. Um, we've also got other projects up there too. If you you know if you just want to, if you're looking at a holiday to Fiji or somewhere close, and you want to add some volunteering on that, we've got orphanages and and similar nutrition health projects running over there. So yeah, there's definitely, and even if it's just volunteering at your local um, you know food bank or helping people on the streets, it's I think it's really great to step into that and and just do what you can. Yeah, that's awesome. Lauren, what's the best way people can connect with you if they want to know more? Yeah, either my Facebook page, which you can probably find from Jules's site. Maybe I'll put a little um, link on your page, Jules, or www.volunteering.org.au. Yep, beautiful. Excellent. Oh, my God. I'm just, yeah, I'm overwhelmed at, at the task at hand, but I'm super super excited to get started so thank you for explaining to everyone why what's going on and and what we're doing over there and um and i'm just so looking forward to meeting everyone else on the team now yeah thank you so much for having me on and and thank you for saying yes you know to this project it takes a lot of courage as i mentioned before and a lot of putting your life on hold to you know doing something such as this so thank you really appreciate that you can come Yay. Thank you for everything you do. (laughs) Thanks, Jules. Bye. Thank you so much to Lauren Lacey for coming on the show. Now, as we mentioned, I'm raising funds to purchase as much food and as many supplements as possible for the refugees while we are there. If you would like to show your support, please donate. You can find the link on my website at julesgalloway.com. Just look on the right-hand side and you'll see a button there that takes you to my crowdfunding page. All proceeds will go to making life better for the refugees and I will be updating my website and Facebook page with blog posts and videos of how your donations have made a difference. Thank you in advance. It really means a lot to me. I'll be back next week with another inspiring interview with a health and wellness person. Please join me by hitting subscribe. That way you never miss an episode. Until next time, stay shiny and bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.